I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, This Mythic Life. Like all of my work, this podcast is drawn from ancient but still bubbling wellsprings, from the old fairy tales, myths, and philosophies of the West. These traditions, from the magical stories of old Ireland to the soul-centered myth-tellings of ancient Greece, are rich, complex, and beautiful. They offer up a world in which everything is not only alive, but has purpose and intentionality of its own. I believe that it's time to reclaim those ways of being and seeing and bring them back out into the world where they belong. In this series of conversations centered around the publication of my book, Haggitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, I offer you reflections from women who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through the dark forest of our forgetting. Haggitude is a radical rewriting of the future for all women in their mid and elder years, beginning with the reclaiming of menopause as a liberating alchemical moment from which to shift into your chosen, authentic and fulfilling future. You can find out more about Haggitude, both the book and the membership program, at haggitude.org. Welcome to the Haggitude podcast, and I'm delighted this afternoon to be joined by Tanya Shadrick, who is one of my favorite people, and um, I absolutely loved her book, The Cure for Sleep, which I've recommended to many, many people and to all of my friends, and um, it is a book about what, what cha- I suppose I would, I would say it's a book about what changes when you have a near-death experience and kind of a... Um, reclaiming your life after the universe has basically slapped you around the chops is kind of how I would put it but Tanya is a a writer and an artist and uh, many other interesting things that are going to become apparent when we speak so Tanya thank you so much for being with me today. Hello Sharon thank you so much for for inviting me to talk about this and and I think I'm one of the first readers beyond your publishing team of of Haggitude so I feel very excited to have this conversation today. (laughs) Yes you are which is a bit scary but um, (laughs) it has to happen I suppose. Um, I just wanted to say for those of you who who aren't familiar with Tanya's book that um, one of my younger friends that I lent it to recently um, close to me here said it was one of that remarkable set of quite rare women's memoirs where what apparently small things become very luminous you know so it's kind of like I think of it as the antidote to the celebrity memoir it's actually the memoir that any of us can fall into Um, and it, it is about what seem to be very very small things which just completely transform a world and a life um, and all of the things that we bring to it. So um, just giving you a little plug there. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, that's the m- most uh, perfect way you could have described the book. I set out to kind of write a book about the heroicism of the ordinary, of our ordinary, or what Thoreau called our invisible hours. Now in our invisible hours, that's where our real tester character is and all the women who've raised me and you write about this too. So thank you. That's the way I'd love my book to be described. <laughs> well, there you go. That's that's done. So I want to start, um, since this is a podcast about what I call haggitude, which is a kind of attitude, varying um, types of attitudes that we may or may not adopt as we grow older. 
it is a word hag that polarizes people you know some people love it some people hate it I've had both what does it mean to you the word when you when the word hag is spoken what does that conjure up for you well, obviously, as a younger as a young girl or a teenager, I would have thought about the you know the kind of Disney version of the witch. You know, it's that kind of it's that marginal. It's not anything we want to be. Yeah. Um, but then, when my children were young, and I discovered lovely old children's books in the university library where I worked, I came across a picture book retelling of the um, I can't remember. Is it Gawain and the Loathly Lady? Yeah. Um, and that. Uh, that just turned on lights in my head and my children loved the story as well they found it really compelling this idea of this monstrous hideous old creature and you have to engage with it and then you know as as most people who know know the story or a version of the story know really surprising things happen um and is it the same one where the, the the man marries the woman and then he has the choice after the wedding night? Do you want me to be beautiful in the bedchamber and hideous in court or you can have me, you know, and it's like, do you choose to have a beautiful wife in public or in your bed? Right. You have a choice. And all of those kind of concepts around women's appearance and things just lit up something in my brain. Um, so So now for me, the idea of a hag is is somebody holding strange power, is somebody operating by different older rules. Um, there's a lot of contained power there for those who are um, who have the wisdom to engage. Yeah, in the old stories, um, the, the, the older women, the ones who were haggish, um, really were the ones who moved the story along, weren't they? So everybody thinks that the princes or the princesses are actually the protagonists. And of course they are. You see very, very few stories in our tradition uh, with older women as protagonists, but nevertheless, they're the ones who who make it all happen. They they set the hero off on his journey. They give the heroine all of the help and allies that she might need, you know, in order to develop. And they kind of run the show. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think as I'm getting older, my imagination, I, I think you used the word insipid. I, and in my book, there's this repeating refrain about, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated, as you know, by um, fairy tale. My book's told like a fairy tale, um, but I'm not interested in the ones where lives are transformed by wish or wand, as I call it. Yeah, I'm interested in the ones about effort and trickery and bravery. And, and yes, the hags or the elder women in stories are are the holders of that kind of energy and and that as a storyteller but also as a woman in the world I think there's a lot more to be learned there than circling the kind of myths about the princess who's woken from sleep by a kiss because you know even when you're young that's not a particularly I I spent too much of my life waiting for the the prince who was going to save me you know (laughs) we all yeah (laughs) and in the end it was the old woman who saved us in a sense yeah I think for most of us and it is that sense of apprenticeship that I find which you're alluding to in those fairy stories which is very wonderful and one of the stories that I talk about in the book is the story of um for example Mother Holder you know Mm -hmm. who the uh, German um probably once upon a time a goddess now a kind of fairy tale old woman who lives at the bottom of a well and the girl who has to spend time in her company um, in order to gain all of the skills she needs a year and a day is the usual kind of magic formulation (laughs) that she comes again so yeah I always thought of that 
character, not just as um, someone I wanted to meet because I didn't really have any good mentors in my life, but as someone I wanted to become. Yes. More yeah. than the princess, you know, I related very much more to those characters. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think from, from all of your books I've read, I think you had that awareness much younger than me. I think, well, also my writing life came later than yours. So it was only in my mid forties that I began to find what I call a public voice right. um, where I began to move outside of like kind of domestic or employed roles and to, and to become more of a person of the edgelands than somebody moving across or between social groups and even creating my own, and it was because I became increasingly interested with this idea of the old woman in the woods. Um, but I was wandering fields and never meeting anyone. So for me, my big transformation happened when I always brought some of those ideas of the elder, the hag, the, the troll under <laughs> the bridge and plumped myself in my hometown and, and began to write my diaries on a grand scale in public. And it was my way of taking the energy of those strange myths and, and but making myself more likely to be found. <laughs> Yeah, but that's what happens in, in midlife, isn't it? If you let the process work on you, which which clearly you did, mm. um, the number of women who come into a really kind of fruitful um, relationship with the world and way of being in the world at that point and afterwards is really quite remarkable. I mean, I actually, I didn't have a voice very much earlier than you say. Um, I think, you know, I left corporate life when I was in my very early 40s. And then I spent a lot of time, although I wrote a novel in the meantime, I spent a lot of time nurturing the voices of others. And it wasn't really, um, I don't, I would say until I wrote If Women Rose Rooted when I would have been, it wasn't published until I was about 55. I don't think I really came into a voice. Actually, we've had a really similar trajectory then because I began as a hospice scribe um, in my early 40s. And then it was 44 when I began writing my mile on giant scrolls in public yeah. my um, wild patient scrolls so so actually look at that we and we both that's a very similar route for both of us it was when we began to be those those um wise woman figures and you I can think, you yeah. can do it in any decade actually it's when you decide you're going to have that more intermediary or what feels like a peripheral role but actually it it's almost like a lightning rod or something do you know what I mean it's when you stop wanting to be the heroine mm-hmm. Or the fairy tale version of a heroine and you go actually I think a more interesting role is to be the person that encourages the stories of others or attends to the lives of others but while also having a really strong self so it's not being the angel in the house it's not being that kind of you know idea that Virginia Woolf named so acutely it's it's not being subservient to others it's an it's an equality and I think that's another value of I would say a hag has there's some kind of like court you know there's some kind of rules they can often be quite um quite difficult for people to adjust to but there's a kind of fairness there's a kind of you know you'll be in service to me and if you do these things this is how we'll have a we'll have an equal relationship exactly yeah and I think just going back to that kind of idea of of fruiting I guess flowering whatever you want to call it in later life I you know I remember from my late teens or early 20s wanting to be a writer never thinking that girls like me from a very working class northern background could be but nevertheless Mm -hmm. holding it as something to aspire to when I tried to to start writing a book in my early 30s I was very much aware very quickly that I had nothing to say that mattered Um, And it wasn't really until after I had had, you know, 
my third midlife crisis um, around 40 when I learned to fly to, to overcome a, a fear mm. of flying that I actually had a story that I thought probably needed to be told. And I think that it's not to say that younger writers don't have stories that need to be told. I think it really is different for everybody. Yes, for yeah. me, I really do feel like I've always been moving towards this time in my life, which I see as absolutely the most rich and rewarding and, and yeah. easy in lots of ways, you know? No, and that's the same for me. And I, I think, I mean, I gave an interview when the book came out where I said, to be clear, I love these kind of wonderkins that come along a few times in a generation. So um, my contemporary in terms of age and education is Zadie Smith. So she was at, I think, Oxford to me being at Sussex. So both working class, but she did that thing alongside getting a first class degree like me. She also wrote White Teeth and she's been a part of the literary establishment ever since. Jeanette Winterston, another example, her and my biography is so similar in some ways, both ferociously intelligent, left home very young. We both looked after ourselves. And yet she also managed to get herself to Oxford and then emerge with the big book, you know? And of course, Sally Rooney's our latest example. And, and I love that. I love it when somebody has a voice so young. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are dominant cultural story in the West, because what we love in the West, our, our dominant cultural story is success and self-madeness and prodigies. But I always say that those things, it's almost like the beautiful and the brave excuse us. It's almost like there are, well, they're different than us. Therefore, you know, that, that some people are that and the rest of us aren't. Right. And you can kind of go through the rest of a very long life letting yourself off the hook by saying they're different, you know? And, and I, I think we're examples of, of the slower path to finding a voice. They're both beautiful. One does not exist at the expense of the other. It's just our cultural story does not give as much attention to these very slow stories of blossoming and growth that you and I are both examples of. Excellent. Which is, I think, why we're so passionate about the work we do and why we mentor people and give workshops, because it's important to tell these slower stories. Exactly, yeah. It's like uh, whenever I talk about the concept of calling, uh, you know, that idea that every, every each one of us, that old ancient Greek mm -hmm. idea that comes from Plato and beyond, that each one of us is born into the world with a particular gift, which doesn't have to be saving the world. It can be something very, very simple. It's just like, you know, I've had 20-year-olds in my workshop who are distraught because they haven't found their calling yet. And it's like, no, it really, you know, if you have, then I, I would be very distrustful of it. You know, that's not how it generally works. Of course. That it is a journey, it is a growth and all of the stuff. So for example, all of the, the things that I once considered big mistakes and beat myself up for, like, you know, the, the stint in corporate life actually are the things that have absolutely given me the skills and the tenacity yes. to bring that work out. So, you know, everything has its purpose, I believe, in, yeah. in a life. And sometimes it takes a while for it to, to come into fruition. And I think, and, and what I love in, in your book, Hagitude, is, is you talk about contemporary novels and their, their effect on you, but you also go back to some really old sources. Is it Julian of Norwich you talk about? Yeah, um, Hildebard Hilde Hilde of Bingen. And, and I've now, and I think you mentioned Julian Norwich, but I've now got both their texts and I really need to engage with them um, because, you know, uh, 
Hildegard of Bingham was was she in her fifties when she was really beginning to? Yes. And, you know, she was, I mean, it's, and she's a medieval woman. Medieval woman. I mean, a, a medieval woman shouldn't have have had a voice anyway, but certainly yeah. not in her fifties. And she did live a long life, but she was incredibly prominent in a Christian, profoundly patriarchal tradition. So you know, how can you not admire that? Yeah, and we need we need to gather all these stories together because stories there are teaching they're the best way of you know it was when I began to adapt the ideas from the most uh the fairy tales full of agency and trickery rather than the wish or wand ones mm -hmm. I thought well they're so important in how we raise children it must be because they're teaching stories so why don't like adults learn from them yeah. and, and when you do and when you go back to some of these older historical examples biographies rather than the great white males that we, we all just acquire by osmosis living in our culture when you have to go off and hunt for them or when you find them through a writer you already love and admire as I've done with with your books and with um women who run with the wall you it, it's so powerful and you start to see how you can adapt these stories in your small town or in your office job and yeah that's absolutely one of my passions and and you know the, the whole kind of Haggertude project beyond the book is very much to me about how do we seed stories like this out in the world how do we get people how do how does it become normal to sit down and tell a story you know rather than something that has to be um a performance art some some guy with a big hat on a stage you know it's yeah. just it doesn't have to be that um yeah. it can be just something that you tell around the dinner table when you've got friends over or you tell to your kids um and and let them grow up with so yeah i absolutely agree with you i think that that is one of the key components of change in the future yeah. perhaps but one of the the things that um I wanted to ask you because I'm trying to ask everybody who I invite to these conversations is about your own journey through menopause and elderhood the stage that you are at now and I guess how is it for you <laughs> um I'm very happy to talk about this um so I'm 48 now um there's a, a whole chapter in my book where I describe so I break into this late maid and for someone who was a shy my so my first life pre-near death at 33 was defined by um, clinging to routine because of a difficult childhood so after the near death a spark is lit in me just when I'm least free to do anything about it I find a way in the children's school hours to become a performance artist extraordinary given I was so shy <laughs> um so in my mid-40s, after never feeling very attractive beyond my lovely husband who I've been with since I was 20, he's always made me feel beautiful. But outside, I never felt very glamorous or looked at. I felt quite invisible. Um, I suddenly, because of the performance art and coming into my power as a writer, felt really sexy, like really sexy. And also hormonally, I think I was just flooded. I just, there's a very short chapter where I talk about just being an engine just like a you know roaming town at dawn and dusk full of no amount of married sex was touching it wasn't even about sex I realize in that chapter I realize it's about energy ambition appetite range you know I'm dreaming that I'm a wolf at night and it's just I was an engine um I was just so full of power without any wisdom um, I came off the pill at that point because I wanted to I'd been on the pill for years um I wanted to know when my body began its perimenopause right. because my mother, I mean, she was a deeply unhappy woman in a difficult marriage, but she also really suffered for years through menopause. It, it affects the women in my family very badly. I know some friends that have, I think your journey through it was 
unusual your run into it as you describe in the book but your actual you just kind of it was quite straightforward in the end for you I think um, but for the women in my family it really does destroy them <laughs> you know they lose decades to it and their mental health gets affected their weight and their so I wanted to know when that was coming for me um so I had a period off of any chemicals and it was great if if a bit unmanageable but then last year I was I've always had chronic pain but it was different I was swelling up I was just life had just I'd lost my libido which had always been really high and, and I, I saw the Davina McCall thing. I think this is where we have slightly different views. I don't know. Um, but I decided I wanted to try HRT. And it began to work within days. And I said to the chemist, this must be a, some mental effect, placebo effect. She said, no, if you need the estrogen, you really need it. Uh, and so this is the first time in my life. There's other reasons I'm without pain for the first time in almost 50 years. I've been doing lots of slow Tai Chi for nerve pain. But without this in the mix I don't think I would be where I am now which is really moving my body in a quite mindful way for the first time um it is interesting I think you know everybody's experience of menopause being so vastly different I think we're all completely transformed by it I mean mine mine looked straightforward from a, a physical perspective but wasn't at all psychologically yeah. um but but what is interesting is is you know I I, I always have a sense that I wish people, if they didn't need to, wouldn't blunt the process of difficult, profoundly yeah. difficult transformation with HRT. But on the other hand, I'm very, very much aware, you know, as a psychologist, if nothing else, that some people have really, really yeah. serious um, mood threatening, life threatening, almost symptoms that need a little bit of help to, to work through it. So I don't think there's any one way through it for clarity. No, and I think that's where we, we do agree is that, you know, and this comes back to stories. This is why mm. stories and personal testimony and people who have even a minor public voice sharing their stories as we're doing now. And as I've done on, on another podcast called Postcards to Mid Midlife, um, it's important we share stories because I think and it's important we have choice at a kind of policy level you know I'm glad I'm living in a country where currently that's a choice the same as access to abortion you know I'm glad that there is choice for women um, but without the stories that people tell each to each and it's not just women you know it's like husbands children we you know we all need to understand how kind of roughly half of our population changes yeah to me it's it's not just something women in in perimenopause and menopause should have a language for I, I want mm -hmm. everyone to have a language for this and I also do agree with you but I mean this is why I made what a lot of my friends thought was quite an unusual choice given you know my husband and I still have a, a really rich kind of um, physical life was to come off of the pill mm -hmm. it was because I was in a safe relationship you know I was with a husband who was mindful of my safety um you know so we were very responsible in how we were intimate when I wasn't on the pill um I'm glad that I experienced what it was like to be off the pill I mean my libido which was always quite high went through the roof when I was off the pill and that I, I call it the chemical veil it's like there's some yes. horrifying idea of oh gosh this thing I've been taking on and off since like I was 16 maybe it's been I think I say something like what if it's like a uh, a hood on a hawk or a, a little blank a veil over a cage right. that, that quietens birds down and that's a pretty scary idea but of course I'm glad the contraceptive pill exists right yeah. you know it's it, 
So this is why I think stories are important, choice and stories, meaning at different times in our lives, maybe we should be encouraged to have the agency to experiment. Yeah, for sure. Thing. not just to take it because everyone we know is doing it not to not take it because no one we know do you see what I mean Absolutely. I think that's what I'm committed to is to say to people again coming back to the storytelling idea um in, why don't you experiment quietly with yourself based on you your history what you fear what you're interested in try things mm-hmm see how something feels yeah I mean the hormonal thing is is kind of interesting so I felt you know um, in contrast to a lot of people in menopause who talk about brain fog I actually had the opposite I felt as if all of the fog um, that had been kind of you know that, that I'd experienced I think for I thought for decades because I had kind of relied on hormones or hormones always seem to be driving me you know the urge to mate whatever it might be um is just so whether you're taking the pill or not is is still there and is so fundamental and then all of a sudden that kind of vanishes I mean it may or may not be replaced in some women by a you know a sudden rush of of sexual appetite that they haven't ever had before not everybody experiences that some do for those who do it you know it often fades again very very quickly and then they're left in some kind of limbo but but it was just like oh my god all of those years you know these hormones and of course you can't blame it on a chemical it's your body but you know that was kind of like determining everything my mood my what I I cared about what I wanted to do in the world what I wanted to be where I gave value and then that had gone and it was just like a bolt of clarity um you know that 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 really I really really valued um that all of a sudden I just I just felt clear everything felt clear and of course it often wasn't but but it just yeah it was just like somebody had given me a glass I'd been living in a glass of cloudy water all my life and all of a sudden you know the clouds (laughs) I'm literally hanging on to every word because that's not a place I've arrived at yeah I'm really happy on HRT but that concept I mean that's almost like um you looking back down from a, a you know a ridge or something to me going oh look at the view over here it's like I'm not quite there yet but I like what you're telling me and the fact yeah. that and I do know some women who good friends who are a few years older than me and, and a couple of them did go through the menopause very straightforwardly I mean they had the awful flushes and things but they both you know to the two women I'm thinking of both felt very they they described that feeling of a kind of freedom and, and they're both women with quite a lot of um, uh, they, they're very passionate about their work mm-hmm. and they feel that they're completely free yeah. for that now. Yeah, I think it is really uh, the way that I felt it um, is that it was an absolute burning away of everything that was not essential. Uh, and that's not to say that you, you know, you look at those things burning away and you don't pick some of them back up again because they have utility, but it's just all of a sudden you can, I felt that I could kind of stand back and just say, oh my God, what was I thinking? You know, what was I doing? What was going on there? And then there's just this sense of, no, you know, I'm not doing that stuff anymore. It's just, this is what I want to do. And it's not a selfishness. A lot of people say that menopause can be very selfish. And I think that's just a function of the fact that whenever women in this culture do anything that they actually want sure, to, yeah, we're, we're not somebody else, we're selfish. Yeah, but, but it's it's not that it's just some sense of what I think there is. It, it, it can be, if you allow it to happen, 
And of course, again, we're all different in our life circumstances. If you allow it to happen, you can allow it to happen. It's just a very clear sense of what you what you need, who you are and what you're here for. Now, I don't mean to suggest that comes like some kind of bolt from the sky. You know, it would have taken me a good few years to work yeah. through that while I went through the, the mad rage and the kind of furies and all of the rest of it. Uh, but I only ever saw it as a powerful experience. And I wonder whether that, and, and, and welcome experience, but I wonder whether that isn't because I'm kind of predisposed to great transformational experiences. Because again, you know, I am a psychologist and I do genuinely believe that, that we don't grow unless we hurt. Um, that yeah. all transformation, all good, pos positive, positive, um, life-changing transformation comes out of pain. I mean, you can say that's terrible, but I think it's just a fact. You found yeah. that, I mean, yours came out of pain too. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I've had so many losses in early childhood and, and so many things that I wouldn't have chosen, the near death when I was just 10 days into being a new mother and a reluctant new mother. I've got a beautiful husband who'd always wanted to be a father and we'd been together 10 years before he said, when are we going to have children? I've always wanted to be a dad. And and because I loved him, I wanted him to be a parent. Um, so, you know, it was a strange way to become a mother and then to suffer so much afterwards. But from earliest childhood, I think, because I knew my childhood was not safe and was not right, was not like other people's. I think I, I was just, it's not really an achievement um, because I, it was just the way my mind responded to adverse circumstances. Some, some children are destroyed by the kind of childhood I had. Um, and yours is very difficult. I know from reading If Women Rose Rooted, I, I like you, became fat even before I had a language for it as a as a very young well actually I did I had fairy tales I was obsessed with fairy tales um I was always drawn to well you've lost everything what now yeah exactly. to the point where anyone who knows me hears me endlessly say because I'm a great planner I have five-year plans I have an idea <laughs> the type of 90 year old I want to be and yet I always balance I make a balancing gesture because I use my hands a lot when I talk so it's like I I think we need plans for being very old and outliving everyone we love and losing everyone that matters to us because you don't need a plan for suddenly a death. You know, I almost died in minutes and you don't need a plan for that. Other people have to absorb the shock and horror and sorrow and loss and financial implications of that. Okay. Um, so I live, I live like a balancing scale between the two. I plan to, to be old and I also, understand that anything you plan can go in 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 a moment you know so um yeah my big phrase is um barring accidents and emergencies i will and i find that empowering for me that's my way of accepting um great transformational events um when they come they are you know they're they often do lead to new growth we wouldn't choose them but it's how you respond to the things you don't choose that i think makes life quite interesting it turns it into an interesting shape Indeed. And uh, my own experience with that, which I wrote about in Hagitude, was rather less dramatic than yours in the sense that it was a lymphoma diagnosis and a, which, a, a very aggressive form, which if it hadn't been treated would um, not have ended well. Um, and so that was a kind of longer walk through the valley of shadow death if you like um protracted you know at every stage of that understanding what yeah. could happen um but what it did for me is it made me because it had to be so it made me think of death as a friend mm -hmm. um that was a companion that wasn't necessarily going to kind of like you know lead you all the way now 
but with just somebody that you, some archetype even, or some being that you had to get to know, um, to understand that literally, you know, every, every, not, not just that every day could be the last, but that, yes, as you say, you might not get to, you might not get to put your grand plans out into the world. So when you think of death, Mm. how do you picture death? What, what 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 is who is death for you okay that's a beautiful question because of course a near death is not in any way a death <laughs> um and when i after my near death felt the first thing i could do maybe to move outside of being a private person in in you know private friendships and jobs and family roles was i thought well i think i could probably be a hospice scribe i think i could i think i could sit with people like a kind of secular version of a priest and because i'd done a little bit of counseling training not the kind you've not the full training i i was trusted and i had a good professional profile locally so I began speaking with people who really were going to die. And of course, it's not the same thing at all. And I made that clear to them. It's not the same thing. A near death it can be a great teaching experience mm-hmm. in the sense you can go on and live differently. Mm-hmm. When you're actually given a terminal diagnosis, that's a different teaching experience. Mm-hmm. I would argue that you have the opportunity to share that journey with other people so you can become a teacher as you progress towards death whereas near death allows you to also change yourself do you see what I mean um what does death mean for me um I I say in the book that I don't have a faith and I don't and I don't belong to a church community or anything my near death did make me go oh because I did have a kind of classic near-death experience it did make me go oh this is where God comes from whatever that is for people this is where religion comes from it comes from some people in a culture having almost died and coming back with the knowledge of what that feels like and now of course I think science says that that's and I say at the beginning of the book it's not really my business whether that thing I experienced was um uh, physics or biology or religion it was as real to me as anything I've ever experienced and what I experienced you've already used a very similar phrase actually it was burning off what you said about the menopause so I I was progressing towards the light it was a long way away I was in this darkness that had a dimension and it was just obvious to me that anything in this earthbound life not simply kind and not simply courageous was burnt away on entry that if I had gone into the light it was like the worst horrors of our life here are just awful mistakes, mm-hmm. which is kind of tragic. That so much terror and awful judgment between people in a community, as well as the big horrors of our society and our times and history. It's just an error, you know? Now that's quite a profound thing to come back to your second life carrying. And it's why so many marriages break up after near-death experiences, mm-hmm. because um, the surviving spouse tends to have quite different values thereafter. And when children have near-death experiences, they report less anxiety as adults, um but also they tend to not always succeed in obvious ways that our society measures success by because they're operating by a different frequency um their value system is very different so interesting and i don't i don't mean in any way i mean what you've said is 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 really interesting and very profound and i don't mean to trivialize that by by just saying does death have a face for you um or a body or or is it yes it does but no so it's not a god it's not a woman or a man um it was a i can i know the 
I know the phrase, not simply because I've read the book aloud to myself so many times in editing it, but because this was the phrase that happened to me. I had phrases happening to my in my head during the near death. Um, it was a great collective energy wanting me to come and play. So it was a great and, and a couple of people have asked the fascinating question of was that collective energy composed of animal, non-human life as well as humans? And I it's a fascinating question and I don't honestly have a sense of that all I felt was a great collective energy wanting me to come out and play and how interesting that since then even though it took me 10 years I have now come out to play I, I have a really creative way of living and it was um yeah every being that had ever lived had slipped its skin mm. it was like a release and that's why I love in your book in Haggitude when you you talk about the Selkie myth the, the Selkie myth that's the name of my small press is the Selkie press mm. um it's very important to me and that haunted me on my return to life especially because I was in intensive care intubated and 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 was so seriously ill afterwards it was to have slipped my skin so briefly like most of us only really ever do maybe in lovemaking first love makings for somebody we adore or for some people when they become a parent mm -hmm. um to have slipped my skin and then to be so rudely returned to it in such pain that was one of my great life tests was oh I don't want to be in this body I don't want to be a mother I don't want to be a wife even for this good man I don't want to be in this skin I want to slip my skin that was a big recurring theme in the book how do you slip your skin while also caring for other people so so for me death doesn't have a human face or any kind of religious iconography it's about energy so how do you slip your skin while still caring for other people um i did have a disastrous love affair um and and that didn't work and so what you see in the book you see me living this second life and then you also see me after the disastrous other love which my husband forgave and understood he understood i was responding to a terrible childhood and also this profound change that had occurred to me creatively and and emotionally because of the near death so I'm very lucky I'm still with my lovely husband but you know love didn't cure me <laughs> I, you see me working through a list of I thought I went cold water swimming that's partly how I changed my life you see me going through this I tried immersion in cold water I tried acts of service at the hospice I tried mothering I tried being a good neighbor I literally tried everything that the books of wisdom tell us to do <laughs> it didn't work <laughs> not completely it changed my life but it didn't that's why the book's kind of got the word cure in the title because actually I kept looking for a cure some ways brilliant and strange and eccentric other ways conventional and disastrous and and then at the end you you find me going oh, okay so I because I almost do die of the love affair I, I like a woman in a 19th century novel I I get pneumonia and I know it and I just let myself get ill <laughs> I'm just wasting away I stop drinking I stop eating I really just fade away amidst my family um, um but I survive again and then the work of the third life starts that's the haggitude it's like I, I, you know, I still look quite young for my age, but, you know, in experienced terms, I feel like a very elder person. And it's like, what do you do now? How do you think do you... that part of the, um, the question, part of that question to explore, how do you, how do you slip your skin as you get older is perhaps less about defining yourself in relation to other people, whether it be husbands or sons or lovers yeah. or mothers, yeah. um, parents, so... you know? 
And so then yeah, the penultimate chapter of the book, you see me taking myself off to a shepherd's hut to begin the book that the person is reading that's reaching its end. And, you know, so that's kind of the metaphor of the spinner. You've got the spinner in your book, you know, it's like the whole book turns upon itself like a blanket. And, and you see me going, what, what will I be then? And, and I decide like you, that I'm going to be a storyteller, that it is enough and it doesn't have to be another book. It doesn't have to be this book that people are reading. I'm proud of that, but it's me going beyond the book that hasn't even been published yet. And I imagine myself going along the ridges and along the river and wearing my headscarf and my apron, a bit like my farming granny used to go up through the field with her, her little shoes in her hand. And she would be both very old and close to death. And also the young wife who I'd never met and the young girl who'd been fully fitted to her rural life. And I, I had this really clear image that that would be enough. It would be enough to spend the rest of my life collecting other people's stories and passing stories on. However, I am my money unlike you I may not be able to you know uh, build my life fully around this I might have to go back to an office next year after my 50th birthday when my, my last advance check runs out but that's okay because this thing I've learned how to do I can do anywhere now mm -hmm. and, and I think yes so I think for me the slipping of a skin in the end is is just freeing myself of external markers of success Interesting. And do you think do you think that part of it for you, um, as it certainly is proving for me, as I think about the next few years and as I think about the book that I'm going to write next, do you think part of that is in some way coming to terms with? That's not the word. That's not the phrase I want to use, but I can't think of a better one right now. Is in some way coming mm -hmm. to terms with your ancestry, your parents, your childhood? Is that circling back to that? part of the journey at the moment oh hugely and that's why I respond so much to what you talk about when you talk about the difficulties of your childhood and the violence and but you also talk about that cast of elder women the aunts, <laughs> you know um, the aunties and the you know and they're, and they're ferocious and very particular characters and and I think that's another thing I'm pr quietly proud of in the book is that I was able at the very end of the book it's sort of a chapter that happens when I thought the book had already ended because I'd written the first draft and then a big shift happens in my very dark and stuck relationship with my mother and um and because I've failed so profoundly in my 40s like she did for different reasons suddenly there's this moment at the very end of the book when uh, I have some boundaries and for the first time ever she responds to them and we look at each other and and I can finally understand her choices because I have made some mistakes because of my fear of what people would say about me I know what it's like to be talked about in a small town I finally understand why she might have stayed in a disastrous 40 year long second marriage because she didn't want people to talk about her right. but the woman of 30 wouldn't have I would have just carried on judging her. you should have left women go into refuge shelters all the time it's like now I finally understand what drove my father why did he leave me he was a great father to the family he made after me he wasn't able to be my father and that's because of the thing you know and it is it's just almost like a cliche or it's a joke almost isn't it you know your daddy had a daddy and <laughs> it's like <laughs> they all had and there are some abuses parents delivered to their children which are wrong and should be you know punished in our strongest terms but a lot of other things that were not right for our childhoods I think we come to a point where we have to say I patently survived mm 
Yes, and I think also, you know, <laughs> sometimes you can know that, particularly if you if you if you do um, study psychology or come across psychology, or if you are just kind of emotionally mm. smart, uh, you know, intellectually, I think when you're younger that all of that is true. But I do think you've got to actually get old in your own body yeah. to to yeah. really feel it. Re- yeah, I had to. Yeah be socially ostracized I had to make a mistake in a small town and feel what that's like to have elder women who I adored and needed you know cut me off without a word and there are still some people in the town who helped me raise my children who will not speak to me now because of this love affair that really didn't even begin in some respects it was just love that I was attempting to have honestly and they will not speak to me now until one of us dies that's for life they will not and you know my mum had people like man a lot of women will have that in their families and yeah I agree there's a point where but that's one of the blessings of age for all the things you know for the youth and beauty we lose the great gift of surviving and getting older as you say are these certain freedoms that you end it's like a landscape you certain you suddenly come to a bright field and you go it does feel physical to me I feel like I'm moving in a new landscape and I think you use landscape a lot don't you in terms of how you think about your life and and change Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, it's it's and and it, it has to be very much an embodied lens, a very much an embodied experience, which to me means that it is rooted in some kind of landscape. You know, whether it's your little garden or whether it's a, a wider, wilder landscape, it's very much about the changes, the physical changes in women's bodies that that match the psychological changes all the way through, and you can see that reflected in the earth. Um, and the energies of particular places and how they make you feel um, as as you get older Um, if you I I know it's difficult possibly or maybe it's not uh, looking forward being in the place where you are Mm -hmm. but if you had a vision for your own elderhood what do you think it would be so in the book um, I talk about different archetypes childhood based on different kind of fairy stories and and myths in the European tradition so there's everything from the raging furies that I felt in menopause to um to the fairy godmother to you know Baba Yaga the dangerous old woman (laughs) wise woman the fates who weave and spin and you know create the world which of those archetypes do you think that you really relate to um and can see yourself in you talk about the medial woman, which is, even though I've read a lot of psych, I'm not trained as a psychologist like you, but I've read deeply of Jung and, and of many of the same people as you, but I'd never come across that concept of the medial woman mm-hmm. or indeed heard you invoke Tony Wolf, I think, who was Jung's lover. And he was a psychologist and you get that concept, I think, from her writing. So that was fascinating mm-hmm. for me. So could you say a bit more to people listening? Because for me, that was a very new idea, but I felt that I recognised that. So you invoke the medial woman and you also talk about the mystic and a number of people who are of faith who've met me on my writing journey say you say you don't have a faith but you're actually like all the classic Christian mystics and interestingly in your book it was being I'd heard of Hildegard but I, I didn't know anything about her and I thought yes that's me so before I say anything more about that myself, maybe you want to say a little bit about yeah, just briefly. I mean, uh, Tony Wolfe, who was Jung's colleague and and lover, um, 
had an idea that there were four major female archetypes. Now, obviously, this is of the time. Okay, there are many, many more, but she wrote about four that she thought were really important. One was the mother. Um, one was the Hataira, which is kind of a kind of a muse kind of character. The other was the Amazon, you know, the kind of warrior protector woman. And then the fourth was the medial woman. Now, the medial woman is the only archetype who doesn't really define herself in relation to anybody else. Clearly, the mother does. You know, the Hatara is somebody's muse. The Amazon is fighting for somebody um, or trying to be something in a community to, to, to have a kind of strength and a prominence. Whereas the medial woman is kind of, I always think it's a classic midlife woman who is suddenly turned in on herself, whether she wants to be or not, and has to find out what she is when everything is burnt away in the great yeah. fires of, of menopause and how when all of that stuff is stripped away or um, falls away for a little while, you know, wh wh what is she at heart, not defined by anybody else or by any other mm. situation. And for a lot of women at this time of life, there is a kind of psycho-spiritual element. It doesn't necessarily, uh, mostly doesn't, you know, result in kind of religious conversions or whatever, um, but there is a sense of a search for meaning and, and a sense of a, uh, of a, a deepening of powers of intuition of creativity of all of that kind of stuff which is kind of psycho-spiritual you know yeah. it's all the stuff that that we have learned to suppress most of us as we're women to concentrate on the practical and the um yeah. and the intellectual yeah. so the medial woman is is a really interesting one to me and there are very many faces of her so you know the witch is the classic medial woman um but the idea of the mystic Hildegard of Bingen is a really interesting one to me because she she flowered in her in the second half of her life yeah. and she lived a long time and yeah. so she was about 50 when she really started to make an impact in the world and boy did she make an impact I mean even the Pope was writing to <laughs> well, Hildegard of Bingen. That's I'm signing up then so yes so I would I say that. I am but the only mystics I had had available to me because people had been saying to me from my hospice days onwards because uh, hospices obviously there are um uh there are um uh, why have I gone blank it's the um you know uh, there are people of different faith there okay and um, a number of them were saying to me are you Buddhist and I was like no I've read a lot I read everything so of course I've read Buddhism and they were saying and then another woman said yeah you're like all the kind of Christian mystics you're kind of like um you, you need to read George Herbert you need to explore <laughs> William Blake but they were all male figures yeah um, so now I'm excited because I'm going to go off and devour everything I can find out about Hildegard Bingen. So yes, that's me. I am, I am the medial woman, and I love that you've now given me a word for it. Um, I am, and this began for me in my late forties. I uh, self sovereignty is a massive word that continues through my book. I've ever since earliest childhood actually, because my boundaries were so trespassed upon. I've always been fiercely wanting to achieve self sovereignty and utterly failing because of this terrible longing. And the love affair finally did. I call it a stake in me. I was like a goat on a little tied to a stake. I was always looking for this extra love. Even my good husband didn't meet this need in me for an older male love not even sexual just love from a man that would really cure me and I'm so glad that's gone it was a painful way that it, it left me but it's gone and I do feel free now it's like I'm not waiting in one small place for the man that's going to find me the whole world is now open to me um, and through the book women like you have been getting in touch and people are saying come and visit me and this and I've never traveled so suddenly there are women older women all around the world who want to give me lodgings in return for stories and talk mm. so 
this is me. I'm also completely, I navigate by what I call signs and wonders. I don't believe the universe is concerned with my small self, but I let, I, if a feather falls on a particular day, I let it surprise me. I don't think it was sent to me by somebody. I choose to let contingent events change my path. So in that sense, maybe I'm a mystic because I let the world speak to me. I just yes. don't believe it's a Christian God talking to me, but mm. You know, that was exactly what Hildegard was. I mean, you know, oh, okay. she did believe in the Christian God. But what is wonderful about Hildegard and why I, I use her in the book is she is a classic example of the, the womanly mystic, which is entirely earth centered. She was a, she was the first green. You know, she was the first one to say, no, we have to listen to the voice of the earth. That's where yeah. God is. And that was a desperately rare thing in the medieval period or at any time in Christian history, actually. So I think, yes, let, there, I, I'm out, I listen. I take as much um, I take as much advice from birds and things as I do from exactly. from people. It's like I will let the behavior of birds surprise me out of um, there's, it's, a, it's a male poet, but there's a lovely poem by Wallace. Stevens I think and there's a line in it which goes something like um, I'm the necessary angel of earth since in my sight you know it surprises and people out there stiff and stubborn man locked set and and that's what the natural world is to me it surprises me out of my stiff and stubborn man locked set so yes yeah, inherently a more female way of looking at things more diffuse so yeah, you've given me a whole new language of, of the thing I already am. And I feel like I've now got like my, um, I've got my fully coherent identity to own. Thank you. Oh, well, that's lovely. How lovely. Okay, well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me. I'm sure we could go on and on and on. Oh, um, and will one day probably around a cup of tea rather than over a microphone. But um, thank you so much. Um, it, it's been really, really rich. And can I say to anyone listening to this conversation, uh, Hagitude, if, if like me, if Woman Rose Rooted was one of those books that a woman put in my hands and said, you need this book, and I've given it to people in the same way. And, and Hagitude is, is the, that same book, but it's, you know, a bit further down the line. And again, it's the same thing. It's the book, it's a book I'm going to be putting in people's hands. So the fact that I've been able to read it early is, is really precious to me. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. My first proper review. Thank you. I really appreciate <laughs> that. And finally, where, where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? Where can they find you? Um, both on Twitter, just at Tanya Shadrick. Um, but my website is called thecureforsleep.com. And the first link on that page is to, I have a story sharing community free on Substack, but find it via the website thecureforsleep.com and uh, each month I add a new theme from the book um, desire regret friendship mirrors hands and um, but all the themes stay open for the long term for people's contributions so my book becomes a place where I want to call forth stories from others that's what I stand for in the world the book is there for the same thing so I've got a growing community all around the world men and women who are writing me true stories on those themes from their own lives and there are no deadlines because I wanted people like me who have had childcare or health issues or demanding jobs to always feel that there is room for them to enter in plenty of time so if any of the people listening to this conversation come and join that community that would thrill me to hear their stories in turn because that's what you and I both stand for in the world I think so the cureforsleep.com please come and find me do and it is a very beautiful community on Substack it's a really interesting and unique way of using Substack and again I, I recommend that as highly as I recommend your book so thank, thank you. you so much
Thank you for listening to this episode of This Mythic Life in a series centred on Hagitude. And if you'd like to find out more about Hagitude, the book and the membership programme, please visit hagitude.org.